Looking good, looking good. Like you know we should. Looking good today. You're listening to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast. We're the five going strong. We can do no wrong. We're looking good today. We're looking good. Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast, episode number 14. Scott Morrison alongside the coach, Iron Mike, and I trust, Mike, you're doing well. We're doing well, Scott. Uh, certainly, uh, again, living in a different world, watching hockey that uh, we have no fans uh, in the audience, but uh, certainly enjoying uh, the presentation the NHL has been uh, making for the playoffs and certainly exciting uh, as we continue to watch and go into the finals soon. Yeah, Stanley Cup final, a Stanley Cup final in September. Who would have thunk it? Now, last episode, we talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, the 85 Flyers you coached, uh, your first NHL coaching job, the youngest team in professional sports, and you took them to a Stanley Cup final, losing to the Oilers uh, uh, four games to one in that series. Uh, 86, you got knocked off by the Rangers early in the playoffs? We did, and that was uh, the year that Pelly Lindbergh was killed in November. Uh, certainly had a good solid season, but uh, by the time we got around to the playoffs, I believe Scott, we were pretty burnt out in terms of emotional uh, investment that was spent to to grieve the the passing of Pelly. So we go to 1987 Stanley Cup final. You get to Edmonton, but we'll get there in a minute. And you had a rookie goalie that season that you didn't bring up after Pelly had passed away. Uh, Ron Hextall. We'll talk more in bigger detail about him, but just talk about Hextall coming on the scene that year. Well, we went to watch him play in, in Hershey, Bob Clark and I, and, and uh, I was hoping that Bob would bring him up, but Bob uh, had the, the idea that it was too early for him and that he wasn't quite ready, that we didn't want to put him in a position uh, if he wasn't ready that would uh, damage his future. So Bob's evaluation was very good, solid. We had Bob Froze, who was uh, our backup to Pelly, a solid goaltender. We still ended up with 110 points, uh, but he didn't have the, the skill set that Pelly Lindbergh had. And then, of course, Ronnie came up. Uh, interesting story, uh, Scott. We went through, uh, as uh, always, the Philadelphia Flyers, we'd play the maximum number of preseason games at the time. And I believe at this particular year it was 10. Uh, and uh, at the conclusion of those preseason games, after playing Ronnie for several games, uh, I said, I'm not sure if you're ready, but let's give it a go. And that was the second player I had ever done that to. The first was Rick Tockett in 84, 85 se uh, season. And I wasn't sure. Rick had all the, the drive and, and the competitiveness, as did Ron Hextall. But Rick's, uh, I thought, was marginal in terms of his skating. He said, Mike, I can play in this league. Of course, the rest is history as far as Rick Tockett is concerned. He, he played many, many years without, uh, without uh, going back to the minors at all and, of course, accelerated uh, and became a, a great player. And Ron Hextall did the same thing. He said, Mike, I'm ready for this. I said, you know, there's a great deal of pressure that comes with your position. He said, I'm ready put me in. So I, I put him in. And of course, uh, 
he excelled and, and uh, we had a great season with him and, and his competitive fiery spirit uh, certainly uh, penetrated the locker room. And uh, as a result, we we're back on track to go to the finals again. Uh, and I know we're going to go step by step here, but that was a great introduction to Ron Hextel's fiery spirit for me after we'd gone through all those preseason games. And you had a loss on the blue line that season too. Brad McCrimmon departed. Yes. Uh, Bobby Clark traded Brad. And, and uh, I, I remember Bob calling me at the, at my cottage in, in, in the apartment nickel and said, Mike, we've traded Brad. And I said, Oh, that's great. I said, but who's the replacement? Well, we got a draft pick. I said, Oh boy. So Mark Howe and, and, and Brad McCrimmon were playing at least 30 minutes. I don't think anybody plays like that today, but, they were playing at least 30 minutes a game. So we had to find someone that was going to be able to, to step in and take that type of ice time. And, and uh, uh, we experimented a little bit. Bob went and got Shell Samuelson to play with Mark and Shell, uh, a gangly, long-reaching defenseman who had an edge to him as well, uh, did a nice job for us. But... Uh, uh, we also acquired uh, J.J. Daniel and Eddie Hospodar at the same time. So we were, we were trying to fill the, 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 the void that was left with Brad, the, uh, the passing or the parting of, 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 of Brad McCrimmon to Calgary. And the Samuelson deal didn't happen until December, so you had to endure we're, some of the season with the hole on the ball. Then. It was patchwork until then. And the interesting story as well about Ron Hext, although – Ron now became a great puck handler, as everyone, everyone knows, as a goaltender. And uh, Mark uh, made a comment one day. He said, Hexy, you're going to put another 10 years on my career because I never have to go back in my own zone to pick up the puck now. I just post up at the far blue line and you pass it up to me. So, uh, again, uh, the, that relationship in terms of uh, uh, evolution of the game where goaltenders could become great puck handlers, uh, I think Ronnie was one of the best in, one of the earliest, I know that uh, uh, the Islanders had it with Smith and, and uh, there was a few goaltenders could handle the puck, but uh, Ronnie really accelerated in that part of the game. And in that Samuelson deal, you traded Bob Froze, who had been your number one the previous season and was a Vesna finalist. So that you had to have a lot of confidence right away about Hextall. Yeah, we did. And, and uh, it was... Uh, Again, uh, part of watching him in the, in, the, in the Calder Cup in Hershey that was convincing, and then, of course, how well he played in preseason uh, really helped us with the evaluation. Okay, so you had a 100-point season, another good season, best team in the eastern side of the, of the National Hockey League. You get to the playoffs, opening round, beat the Rangers in six games, easy series. There were no easy series, particularly against the Rangers. There was so much pressure, and particularly uh, our owner, Ed Snyder, had such a dislike for the Rangers. And, of course, they had beaten us the year, year before in a five-game series uh, in the fifth game. And, and so there was a residual effect of, of the New York Rangers, and there always had to be some kind of, uh, I think, um, feeling about playing the Rangers and, and, and a trepidation of playing them in the playoffs, but we were able to get by them. And, and uh, of course, uh, 
because we had traded Bob Froles, there was some added uh, influence in terms of uh, the focus on that series and the focus on the Rangers. Second round, New York Islanders. You're up 3-1 in the series, but need a game seven to get by. Yeah, well, you could never discount the the Islanders. They still had uh, some great players, and, and they had that winning tradition. They knew how to win, uh, although we took it to – to the limit, or they took it to the limit, I should say. Uh, we had a convincing victory in game seven, five to one, but uh, that was a, a battle and certainly uh, something we probably expected from the Islanders, but you have to remember the old Patrick division, uh, the scrutiny in that, in that division, media, New York City, the Rangers, Islanders, uh, you know, the proximity of the travel was easy. The only flight we had to take was to Pittsburgh. Uh, so Jersey and, and Washington bus rides, but the, the scrutiny of the media certainly intensified the, 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 the focus of the Patrick division in the league at that time. So now we get to the third round, the Wales Conference Final, which was an eventful series. Uh, you go up 3-1 in that series again lose game five at home. You lost two games at home in that series, both of those uh, five, two scores. And now we get to game six, which in Montreal at the forum, that was memorable for several reasons, including the pregame warmup. Well, that series was really uh, an interesting uh, Montreal Canadiens, of course, the, the aura that they had and they come in and, and then they start uh, uh, unbeknownst to us, but uh, this ritual about putting the pucks into the empty net when the, the warm-up was concluded. And our players really didn't take notice of it to begin with. But then after uh, we saw this for a second time in Philadelphia, they started it because we, we opened the series in, in Philadelphia. Um, some of our players took exception to it. And uh, this thing became escalated uh, uh, as uh, Chico Resch and, and Eddie Hospodar, they pushed the net against the wall. And, and then uh, uh, Claude Lemieux and Sh Shane Corson, I, I know these personalities, uh, they come out and turn the net around and, and score into the empty net. And of course, uh, uh, the rest in terms of the historical significance of that brawl was ongoing. Uh, Hockey Night in Canada was broadcasting the game, and we're not even finished the warm-up. They're coming to to air for the for the play-by-play, -play. and of course, uh, uh, we've got the officials who come in late to the arena into the into the form, and they've got to scramble, get their gear on, and and, and try to go out to separate this uh, this colossal brawl that's going on that went on went on and on, and and uh, one of the stories again included Hextall, where I locked him in the dress room because uh, I felt, well, if we lose this guy to a fight, uh, uh, we're going to be in trouble. And, of course, Hex, he was demanding that I, I let him out to fight. He was laying down his team, and he loved to get involved with, with that type of activity. But uh, uh, certainly that was a, uh, an incredible uh, – it wouldn't happen today, but it was an incredible event in the game. And – it wasn't unusual, though, Scott. I mean, I went to the, the Norris division after that, and we'd have brawls in Chicago all the time. So the, 
was a different mentality at the time. And, and uh, uh, interesting enough, people are in a bubble now and they get in the same elevator and they're at the same restaurants in the, in the afternoon. It's, it can't be avoided right now. But at that time, players wouldn't even talk to each other uh, during the season. So, again, an example where Ed Snyder come down and I'm standing by the boards. They yell and, and get me out to try to break it up. And Eddie comes down and tells me, get out. And I says, hey, not a chance. I got shoes on. I'm not, I said, you go out there. I, there's no way I'm in, out, out on that ice without skates. So, uh, as you know, they got it all settled out. And then, of course, Ron Hextel was really instrumental in us winning that game. I believe they completely outshot us, something to the, to the, the numbers of 16-4 to four in the first period, but we come out and, and end up winning that game and go on to the Stanley Cup Finals again in 1987 against the Edmonton Oilers. So just to set that scene a little bit further, I covered that game that night, and uh, it was only the two Canadians left on the ice, and then it was Boxcar Hospodar and Chico Resch, of all people, that came out to go after them. Did, did Hexy have an influence on Chico? I never thought of him as a fighter. Well, he wasn't a fighter, but I think that he took exception to the fact that they, they were uh, a little bit, as he would say in his terms, disrespectful. So I think that it, it wasn't the intention of, the, of this escalating into a brawl, but of course, Eddie Hospital, who, who get involved, so they get out there, and, and now uh, Corson is out there and, and Lemieux, and all of a sudden, Eddie's taking on Lemieux, and then they kind of sort of get in the middle of it, and they say, well, what are we doing here? But it was too late. By that time, the rest of the bench had, or the, the dressing room was had emptied onto the ice, and, and then it escalated from there. Uh, uh, some incredible uh, 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 visual uh, looks at, at things. Uh, Doug Crossman comes out with flip-flops on. Dave Brown comes out with no shirt on, and he's fighting, I believe, Larry Robinson. A super oh, he had Chris Nyland. And Chris Nyland, so that it was Knuckles Nyland and, and Dave Brown, and and then we had a, they had a tough team, and so did we. Uh, many guys that could get involved with fisticuffs, so that's why it escalated as well. We should mention, too, at, at that time, as you mentioned, the referees, they didn't watch the warm-ups, so it was... They showed up at, at 8 o'clock or whatever the game time was. And, but, of course, that were, that got changed after that brawl. So it was a game-changing night. It really was. And, uh, again, uh, those the referees, uh, they, had, they had no – they weren't suspecting anything. They, were, they could have been at the arena, but they weren't, they weren't dressed yet. They didn't have their – they didn't change into their uniforms or their skates. And they had to quickly get that uh, – done because they had to get out of the ice to, to separate this massive uh, uh, confrontation at the time. So one thing I found when I was doing a little bit of research, kickstarting the memory bank on, on that night, is you had 24 guys dressed for the warm-up. Canadians had 18 and two goalies. <laughs> well, we were, I don't know if, I don't think that was intentional. I think we were trying to uh, figure out because we had a lot of injuries, as you know, and uh, we brought people like Don Knockball up at Al Hill, Tim Tookie. We were bringing people up from Hershey and, and trying to decide on the lineup. So it wasn't the intention of having a brawl. That was a, uh, that wasn't something I expected or, or were premeditating, but 
it evolved that way. And yeah, we had more people than, than they did for sure. Well, you might not have expected a brawl, but you were well prepared. So <laughs> there's nothing wrong with preparation, making meeting opportunities, Scott. So you mentioned about, just before we get to the final, you mentioned about Hextall and his puck handling. And of course the next season, he became the first goalie to shoot a puck into the net. Billy Smith had been credited with a goal uh, prior to that. But talk about Hextall, and you really encouraged him to work on his on his skills and uh, in practice. Yes, and he, he liked the idea of handling the puck, which was, again, something he did exceptionally well. He could shoot the puck hard uh, for a goaltender and, as you know, loftily as well. He he could shoot it over the players' heads, and that's exactly what he did when he scored uh, his his first goal. Uh, but uh, he did enjoyed just, he, he enjoyed that activity in practice. He'd be trying, and he'd be lofting the puck out to the far zone. And, and at the time, the red line was in place, so it couldn't be that far. But uh, he was really adept at uh, handling the puck. As a coach, does it some nights – some games, does it drive you a little bit crazy when you see the goalie trying to score goals instead of just controlling the puck? No, not at that time. Uh, I expected it from him, actually, um, because he was so skilled and uh, could, could uh, shoot the puck like a, a player. So uh, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, and uh, I think that they were uh, looking for an opportunity for him to do that. The team was, that is. And of course, they, they found it, and he ended up scoring the first goal, legitimate goal by a goaltender. And and uh, of course, the team really enjoyed that and celebrated it uh, with him. So, uh, as I said, Markel liked the idea of a goaltender moving the puck so well, and 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 it emphasized a different uh, breakout. Really, we had another option as breakout, and and I had always emphasized as a coach. The minute the goaltender touches the puck, that that's the time that we're initiating any puck movement offensively. So the exchange is very, very important. Whether he drops it beside the net or he's got the skill set to move the puck out, uh, the offense is initiated the minute the goaltender has control of the puck, and then he has to make the decision, am I going to freeze it or move it? And uh, in whatever manner is... is uh, uh, given to him, sometimes it's crowded net and he can't do anything. But when he has the, the skill set and the options to do that, then, then Ronnie had the – we give him the license. You move the puck freely if you have that opportunity. I remember Gretzky saying when they would dump the puck into the flyer zone, they were told to put it on the left side, on his backhand side, and they would get benched or you'd get in trouble if you put it on his forehand side because the puck would come out just as fast. So let's move on to the, the Stanley Cup final, the rematch, Edmonton and the Flyers, number one versus number two in the regular season standings. You go to Edmonton with, I think it was a short break between series, and you lose the first two games. Well, actually, it was a short break, just to uh, kind of explain that. That particular year, we played uh, 26 games in pl- playoffs, 6-7, six, 6-7. Seven, six, seven. And uh, we 52 nights. 52 nights. So it was uh, preordained. It was already scheduled. There was no TV uh, scheduling at the time. It was every other night. And we won in game seven against the Islanders in Philadelphia, then had to take a jet 
get off to uh, Edmonton. So it was a quick turnaround. And yeah, we, we go there and, and uh, uh, we, we know we're, we're facing our team now has gone through an evolution. 85, the youngest team in pro sport, uh, not expected to get in, into the playoffs, win the President's Trophy, and then, of course, in 86, uh, lose a Vezina Trophy uh, goaltender in Pelly Lindbergh. Uh, rebound with, with, uh, with the backing of Ronnie Hextall. And our team had become tough mentally. Uh, we had still three great seasons in a row. Uh, I think it was 113, 110, 100 points. Second, this time first in the Eastern Conference. And, but we were hardened mentally. And uh, we were way more prepared in 87 to take on the Oilers, who still had a, an incredible team. I, I think Wayne was only in, and Mark were only 26 years of age at this point. So in the prime of their career, uh, or, or their playing time uh, to take them on was going to be, you know, exceptionally uh, difficult, but we were more ready than in, we were in 85. Although in 87, we were really banged up with, with injury. Yeah. I think uh, Dave Poulin was playing with broken yeah, ribs. Tim Kerr couldn't even play. So. Yeah. Tim Kerr is hurt. Mark Howe was hurt. Mark, yeah. Well, Mark got briefed by Mark Messier in the first game in the first shift and pulled his groin. He said, uh, Mike, I don't know if I can play. And I said, Howie, if you are playing on one leg, you're, be- you're still our best defenseman. So uh, Pat Croce really worked on him daily to get him ready to play each and every night. But Mark had a tough mind and a, a tough individual to be able to play through that pain and play as well as he did. He still was our best defenseman. I remember you once saying that uh, sometimes injuries aren't to a- – aren't an excuse, but sometimes they're a reason. They are. And I used to always take the, the approach that uh, if, if you're hurt, you can play. If you're injured, you can't. And, and there's a fine line between the two. And, and uh, as I said, uh, sometimes injury uh, is inexcusable. If you're at the professional level, you're looking for depth, you're looking for people to come in and fill in. But in the end, uh, it, if you're reasonable, it does impact the outcome for sure because the Oilers had their best players all healthy, and that makes a huge difference. All those Hall of Famers still at the top of their game and healthy uh, against a depleted lineup certainly give them advantage, but we took them to the limit. Yeah, so you lost first game 4-2, second game 3-2 in overtime. You go back to Philly pretty much a must-win situation. You you win there 5-3, and then game four was a, another eventful one, but you you end up losing it 4-1. to one. We do. Is that the uh, Kenton Nielsen? Yeah. Uh, ball? Yeah, we're Hextall. On Hextall. He's a competitor. Yeah, he tries to uh, cut Kenton Nielsen in half, and, of course, he's going to face a suspension, and the powers to be at the time in the league. I, I'm sure Mr. Snyder had a lot of the th- – power in the league and they delayed the suspension to the following season so we got by that game and of course got into the next game with and the series with Ronnie in it but uh, that was a dicey moment uh, thinking that oh no we're going to lose Hexie to suspension right away. Yeah he Hexie claimed that uh, Glenn Anderson had poked him after the whistle when he was covering up the puck and he didn't like it he was waiting for uh, Andy Van Hallem to call a penalty, and when that didn't happen, he took uh, 
the law into his own hands and had the slash on the back of uh, Nielsen's knees. And uh, as you mentioned, ended up getting an eight game uh, suspension, which started the following season, the first eight games and a five minute major in that game. So an interesting turn of events. And uh, so now you're down three to one in the series. What's, and you're going back to Edmonton. What's your mindset at that point? Well, as I said, we were a tough-minded group by that point. We were hardened and uh, had gone through a lot over uh, sort of the initial year of 84, 85, the growth of the team, the experience, and then the, the, the tragedy in 86, 85, 86, and losing Pelly, and then responding and coming back and getting beat by the Rangers. And, and then the... Well, we had to go through to get by again uh, the Islanders and the Montreal Canadiens, and and uh, we were a, resi- uh, a group uh, that had a lot of, uh, I think, resolve. And we went into Edmonton and won a game that we had to win; uh, otherwise, we're eliminated. And I don't. I think we look back now and and say that there's there's no way that we want to do. We want to. Uh, be eliminated like we were in 85. So we had more resolve. And although we were way more banged up in terms of injuries, uh, we still had a lot of experience uh, and determination. And of course, uh, a group that was really driven within. We had a lot of great leaders, uh, super intense players, talk at Sutter, how the whole bunch of them, even the role players came up. They had a lot of fire in them. And, and uh, we were just determined to go in there and win a game, which we did. And you go home and you beat them again, three to two back in Philadelphia, the force that, game that seven. Was great. JJ Daniel, one of my greatest coaching moments ever. He's coming to the bench and I see the play developing and I waved him and says, no, no, stay out, go. So as he arrived at the offensive blue line, the puck is there. He slaps it in past Grant, and, and the Spectrum roof almost blew off because uh, it was a great moment in Flyer history for us to to extend the series and now go back for Game 7. So take us through Game 7. Well, Game 7, uh, again, I, I, I have a lot of respect for Glenn Sather, and uh, uh, he, he also uh, did something I thought was very clever. Uh, great immediate attention now on the superstar team. And uh, I don't know if you recall, but the day before game seven, and again, it's inadmissible now, but at the time he just dismissed his team from the media and there was no media, no practice. They, they disappeared for a day and no Wayne Gretzky, no, no one to interview and uh, we practiced, and of course, all the attention now is on us, all the media, because they had no one to talk to from Edmonton. Uh, he comes back, has a morning skate, and they're, they're, they were all prepared. And, and uh, again, the antics, so we, we didn't reflect upon it much about uh, everybody presenting the cup and then in the dress room and then say they're hiding it in the trunk. And, and we went through all those gyrations previously, but uh, uh, they did a good job. They, they were more prepared for game seven uh, and healthier than we were. The, the score was close, but the play really, uh, as we continued, they took control of the game and ended up winning the cup again. But uh, 
uh, I was very proud of our team and, and I felt badly for them that we didn't have the opportunity to play them with a, with a full complement of players because we were so banged up. As I said, I keep repeating myself that way, but we were, we were running out of bodies, running out of time and, and, uh, and all credit to the Oilers. I mean, maybe the greatest team ever at the time. And I know there was a team that was acknowledged as the best team in the hundred years previous to that, but I think this team was even better. And Ron Hexville speaks volumes, ends up winning the Conn Smythe. I think only the second time that a losing goalie had, uh, had won the Conn Smythe. Yes. And he was outstanding. He was the main reason but that we were able to overcome all those injuries and, and uh, his fire and his play and, his ability to compete uh, ignited the team, uh, gave the team confidence, and and uh, as you said, a very unusual uh, recognition by the NHL at the time for a losing goaltender to be to be given the the, the award of the best player in the playoffs, uh, the Conn Smythe Award, going to Ronnie, which he well well deserved. You had mentioned off air in '85 that the final format was. 2-3-2 two, two in games, and then in 87, it changed to what we see today, 2-2-1-1-1. Two, two, one, one, one. Which did you prefer, and which would have been better for that 87 team? Well, for sure, 2-2-1-1-1 uh, two, two, one, one, one was what we preferred, and, and, uh, and they, they, it was just a short experiment. I don't know how many years they put it, like 2-3-2. Two, two. I think it was only one or two years, and then they, they, there was so much feedback that they didn't, no one liked it. But... Uh, we didn't like it in 85 because of that young group. So we ended up going to Edmonton, hanging out in Edmonton for over a week. And to keep their focus uh, at that time at a young age uh, was difficult. And, and uh, to keep their confidence level up, you're sitting in Edmonton, waiting to play in Edmonton. Uh, you know, we, we, we weren't quite ready for that, but... Uh, I had, would have preferred to play even in 85 uh, with, with a different format, but uh, they changed it, and I think it, it's a better format for the NHL. So how tough is it losing in a second trip to the Stanley Cup final? Stanley Cup is a very difficult trophy to win, and uh, again, uh, it was very difficult, but there, you have to understand you're playing the best, maybe the best team of the century. And there were a lot of great teams in Montreal and the Islanders and the dynasties. And, and here's another dynasty with the, you know, you're playing against the, a team of Hall of Famers and, and the most honored Hall of Famer of all, a guy that's got 2,000 points ahead of the next guy even today. Uh, and Wayne Gretzky. So uh, to take them to seven games, I was pretty proud of them. And of course, after the series, as you know, I end up coaching Team Canada and many of those players came to me and I'm saying, oh my God, I have no idea how we got so close because of their talent and skill level and their ability to win uh, was demonstrated in the Canada Cup series in 87. So uh, again, that speaks volumes of team building and not necessarily having the most talented team, but having a team. And that's what we were. I mean, we were as good as we could be 
uh, with the talent and the skill level that we had, and not to underscore that talent or skill level, but we came together as a group. And we were like that from the very beginning. They came together in, in 84, 85 and remained constant as a group, uh, driven by a hard taskmaster myself who demanded a great deal from them, but they responded and they, they, they really held together really well and grew together and learned how to win. Uh, they couldn't get it done. Uh, or, and, you know, it's whether you're winning or losing. I'd say we were still winning. We didn't win ultimately in the end, but we knew how to win. Okay, one last quick one before we sign off episode 14. I don't think I've ever asked you this. Kate Smith, a good luck charm for the Flyers and God bless America. Did you buy into all that? Well, certainly the fans did, and they loved it. It really built the energy in the spectrum at the time. Uh, Gene Hart's daughter continued to, to uh, have that kind of impact, as she sang, God Bless America. But where it came from initially with Fred Sherrill and, and the Broad Street Bullies, and that maybe Ed Snyder brought her in, I'm not sure. But it, it was part of the mystique of the Philadelphia Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies, the Spectrum, as you know, had a great deal of energy. As I said, when J.J. Daniel scored the game-winning uh, game goal in game six, the roof almost blew off the place. So uh, a lot of energy and, and a lot of originality of the Philadelphia Flyers. As Bob Clark said, we need a personality, and certainly we had one. Okay. Another fun session, Mike, and uh... – we look forward to episode 15. Thanks, Scott. Great speaking to you and, and uh, great memories of Philadelphia Flyers. Take care, everyone.